Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Banner, building communities through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Jacob Tobiah, a non-binary friend from New York who moved to LA a couple of years ago and is experiencing a number of breakout moments in their career, including <laughs> on the Amazon TV series Transparent, a new best-selling memoir, and a deal from Showtime to develop a TV series about their life. I'm conducting this interview with Jacob from New York while they're visiting family in North Carolina for the Christmas holidays. Thanks for joining us on Bammer and Me today, Jacob. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Or, well, virtually, but you know. Exactly. Great to connect with you. So as a way of beginning the conversation and helping our audience and maybe me understand some of the concepts we're going to be covering, would you mind explaining the differences between sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, and where you see yourself in the spectrum? And obviously, tell us how that all connects to non-binary and trans. Yes, so that we're not here for three hours, because I do like whole two-hour workshops on this stuff. Because, the, I mean, the, the reality is like, the thing that I think is most important for people to know and to sort of hold to be true is that we'll never be done as a culture or as individuals learning everything there is to learn about gender and about sexuality and about desire and about orientation. The nature of gender and sexuality is that both the way we understand ourselves is socially constructed, which means that as a, as a society, we rebuild these things from scratch pretty much every day, right? Like every time that we say what we every time we repeat what a man is and what a man isn't every time we repeat what a woman is and what a woman isn't we're redefining these things from from scratch truly and so these things are always going to keep changing so it's important to name that like even if you learn well the first time you're going to have to relearn all of it eventually right and like that's i hold that to be true for myself because we're in a really exciting moment for the trans and queer community where language is changing really fast and people are have the ability to uh, name who they are in exciting new ways and, and um, are taking the power of naming gender more in a more complicated way upon themselves. So anyway, all of that as a preface. But I think the basic the thing to say is that like, you know, there's a few different ways to understand people. And this is kind of the, the 101 very quick flyover. In terms of gender, there's right, there's your physiological sex, and even that is on a spectrum, right? There's not such there's no such like it's people aren't easily divisible into only male or female. There are intersex people, like 1.7% of the population is intersex, which means having some combination of sex characteristics. For some people, that is like ambiguous genitalia. But for other people, it's stuff that's about, you know, sort of chromosomes or hormones or whatever. And then even the idea of what a male body is, a body can be more or less male in terms of, you know, testosterone levels and all that other kind of stuff. So sex itself is on a spectrum, right? Like even, even sex itself runs a spectrum. And then on top of that, you have gender identity, right? Which is who you understand yourself to be and how you feel, right? And that's, that's your choice. This gender identity is only is about you and yourself. It's about your relationship with yourself. No one else gets to tell you what your gender identity is. You get to choose it for yourself. You have a hundred percent agency over that. If you feel and understand yourself as a woman, you are a woman. If you feel and understand yourself as a man, you are a man. If you feel or understand yourself to be non-binary or somewhere in between, you are non-binary or genderqueer or somewhere in between or outside of kind of that whole construct. And gender self-determination is the most important part of all of this, right? Like we all deserve the right to say what our gender is and to have other people respect and hold that to be true and to be dear. 
and trans folks, it, the, the experience of, of being trans is simply not fully identifying with the gender you were assigned at birth in one, one way, shape, or form. And people often use sex assigned at birth, but that's even that is an oversimplification because I don't really feel one way or the other about the sex I was assigned at birth. Like I have a male body and I'm cool with that. Like whatever, like my body itself, like when I look at my body naked, I'm not like, oh, this is wrong. Whereas for some trans people, that is very much the experience, right? Like some trans people will look at their body and be like, no, this isn't right. I would like to to seek gender affirming healthcare to, you know, make changes, right? I want to go on hormones. I want to I want to maybe get top surgery. I want to maybe get bottom surgery. You know, I want to maybe do do facial feminization surgery or or other kinds of uh, procedures to bring my body more in line with how I see myself. But not all trans people look at our bodies and feel like, oh, my body's wrong. But I definitely look at the way I was understood to be a boy and a man because of my body. That's absolutely wrong. Right. Like, you know, that that when a doctor put an M on my birth certificate, yes, it stood for male medically, but it also came with a gender assignment. It came with an understanding that I was going to be a man as I grew up. And for me, man has just never felt quite right. Woman doesn't necessarily feel right either. But I just kind of feel myself like I want to be sort of in a more in between place, right? I want to be able to pull from both closets, as it were. You know, I want to I want to be able to express myself with a range of gender um, presentations and 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 gender expressions. And that brings me to the last part, which is expression. And the reason it's important to differentiate between gender identity and gender expression is that who you know yourself to be and who you are able to share with the world are often two different things. The idea that that we all live as our truest selves every single day in a world that is full of social coercion and economic coercion and, you know, issues of physical safety for a lot of trans folks. I mean, that's just not true, right? Like there are days when I present more butch or more masculine because I need to feel safe. Like when I'm in an airport, my gender identity and my gender expression don't line up because I... I've tried wearing dresses to airports. I've tried presenting really feminine in airports. And then the bathrooms just are just scare me too much. And I just hate using men's. I tried using men's bathrooms in a dress and I just felt way too sketchy and way too weird. And I don't feel comfortable using women's restrooms in an airport just because everyone's more on edge in an airport. Everyone's stressed out. Nobody's happy. And people are from all over and the cultural context is really broad. So, you know, when I'm in an airport, even though I might want to be wearing lipstick and cute earrings and like a cute little dress that's comfy for flying. I, I probably won't because I'm being socially coerced into or by and, and architecturally coerced because gender neutral bathrooms don't exist for people like me, you know, into not expressing my gender as I understand it at the time. So the idea that you know someone's gender identity based on how they're presenting to you presently assumes that there's no such thing as social coercion, assumes that there's no such thing as gender stereotypes or gender norms. So it's always really important to know that just because you've met somebody once and seen how their gender expression, you may not know exactly how they identify fully. So the bottom line is it's all about keeping an open mind. It's all about understanding that none of these things function in absolutes. It's about understanding that there's that there's middle ground in how gender exists and that the basic idea that there are only men and women in this world is incorrect, wrong, and anthropologically useless. So does that sort of cover it quickly? It does. So you basically identify as non-binary, neither exclusively male nor exclusively female, and you express yourself depending on either how you feel 
or how the situation maybe requires it for safety reasons. Yeah, that's that's pretty much right. Although I wouldn't say that I'm neither male nor female. I would say that I'm neither man nor woman. Okay. Because male and female as terms are about your physiology. Um, and and I have a male body, right? Sure. Like to my knowledge, I have I'm I'm not intersex. Although you know sometimes those variations can be super subtle. So perhaps you know there's a lot of people who would be considered intersex that may not even know it. But yeah, I have a male body, and I'm fine with that. But I don't consider myself to be a man or a woman. No. And where does trans fit within all of this, and how broad does that category encompass? Well, there is sometimes disagreement among the trans community about just how broad that category is. But I go for, I cast a really wide net when I talk about who belongs in the trans community. Because to me, I believe that trans experience is a really, really big thing that is shared by so many people. I believe that even sort of whether or not you're trans, like the idea that you're either cisgender or transgender is too much of an oversimplification. If you're a gender nonconforming gay man, do you count as trans? Because you're gender nonconforming, right? But you identify as a gay man. If you're wearing lipstick and earrings every day, but you identify as a gay man, does that count as trans? There's sort of this borderline where things get murky. And I'm here to say that murkiness is really beautiful and politically useful. I want people to be able to name that everyone has had some kind of some kind of experience with gender that has been trans in nature. I think most people in this world have had a moment where they felt like I'm not a man in the way that I thought I was supposed to be, or I'm not a woman in the way that I was told I'm supposed to be. Moments of gender nonconformity and moments of um, gender transcendence and moments of gender rebellion, which are something that many of us have had in our life, are moments of transness. So I look for a super broad interpretation of what it means to be trans and what it means to experience transness, because I think that the broader our definition is, the closer we are to the truth. In my opinion, I think cisgender men and cisgender women as stable categories, I don't know if like fake is the word I'd use, but certainly oversimplified. I think that transness is much closer to the truth of sort of how humans experience gender than this idea that people have these super stable identities that are infallible and totally rigid. So all that is, to, I mean, that's, that's a very ambiguous answer and a very big answer. But, but my point is, I want to call people into the trans community. I want people to identify with the trans community more and not feel like, oh, that's a community over there that I don't know anything about and cannot empathize with. I want people to be able to say, I've had moments, and maybe not, the, maybe not most of my moments in my life, but I've had moments where I know what it's like to feel that way. And especially when I think about the LGBT community, I want gay men to understand that, like, they're part of this. Given the way manhood is understood in our culture, being gay is a gender nonconforming trait. You're rebelling against the gender binary, right? The idea that there are only men and only women has heterosexuality built into it. What it means to be a man in terms of what we've been taught in culturally is to be a heterosexual man, right? And maybe there are moments where gay men can be kind of understood and embraced in part as part of manhood. But I think it's important to name that being gay by default is being gender nonconforming. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's wonderful. And I think that empowers people to sort of name that for real, right? I think, I, I mean, I don't know what your experience is with this. And I'd actually love to hear your thoughts on this. I think that there's a lot of gay men who have trouble dealing with this sense of imposter syndrome as men. 
this sort of second class manhood that is gay manhood and sort of this desire to fit in as men ends up leading people down some really bad paths sometimes. Do you feel like well, that? Well, I have a number of thoughts jumping through my head as you speak. In response to my own situation, if, if I had to say the areas where maybe I am imprisoned a little bit, it's because I grew up in an era where being a man meant a certain machismo. And right. I had I had to adopt and embrace those characteristics. And I was not just pat myself on the back, but I was so successful in doing that that I sometimes have a hard time of letting go of those conceptions, right? Because it's been internalized. Um, right. I grew up in a different era than now. The other reactions I had to what you're saying is on the one hand, I think the upside is it's extremely liberating. Everyone is free to be whoever and whatever they feel like at any moment in time and not to always be the same. The downside only in terms of practical realities is I'm having a hard time imagining the average man or woman in this very mm. complicated world where people don't get educated and learn being able to deal with the complexity of this. I'm not, I'm not saying they couldn't. I'm just saying the willingness to take on the energy and the effort it requires to become fluid in this language and this interaction is something that I'm not sure everybody's up for. So that's the struggle. Right. And that's certainly, I mean, Lord knows I come up against that in my career, trying to figure out how to get people to buy into this. To me, the idea of expanding what it means to be a man and pushing against the gender boundaries that you've been given, that in and of itself is trans political labor. That is a trans gesture. The idea of saying manhood is bigger and more expansive than you think it is. Who I am is bigger and more expansive than the political space you've given me as a man. I don't like your definition of man. I want to change it and build it to be broader. That is trans political labor. In the same way that I would argue that a big part of the women's movement over the last century, well, more, over the last three, four, five centuries, has been trans political labor, right? Like saying women should be able to wear pants and not be persecuted and be safe and be respected in society. And we are redefining what it means to be a woman and creating more space for women to explore gender in a broader category and rejecting what we were told about womanhood, that in and of itself is a trans gesture. Or the fact that gay men prior to Stonewall, if they were wearing any women's clothing or any makeup publicly, were arrested. Exactly, right? That's why I think it's just so important to have a more complicated definition of trans identity and transness, because to me, like, I want people who are like, I'm pushing against manhood and pushing to redefine manhood. I want to be like, that's part of the trans political project, actually. Because what we have in some ways is like, I'm positioned in the middle as like a gender nonconforming person. And I'm saying, you shouldn't have to be in a box to be safe. And then there are people who identify as men who are saying this box should be much, much, much bigger, like pushing the edges of the box towards the center. And there are women who are who are saying this box should be bigger, too, and pushing their box towards the center. And at a certain point, those boxes will meet and the people in the middle will be like there won't be the boxes anymore. Expanding the boxes to the point where they meet each other versus getting rid of them altogether, we're all pushing toward the same goal, which is that you should be able to live in a continuum of gender and no position on the gender continuum, no, no matter how masculine or feminine, should be subject to political persecution or any other kinds of violence. So all that is just to say that I see the work that gay men do to redefine ma manhood and masculinity as feminist labor and as trans labor. I see it as part of the same project.
And I know that's a weird way to think about it. And there are some trans people who would not like me saying that, but that's how I view it. And I'm entitled to view it that way. But I think this, to me, that just feels like the most accurate way to view it. And also I don't, I'm not interested in gatekeeping trans identity. I don't like the idea of like trans is an exclusive club and you have to do X, Y, and Z to enter. I'm more kind of like girl trans is an open field filled with flowers. Come play. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I want it to be. And that's how I want it to feel. So in answer to sort of your second point around, like, how do we get people to embrace this? I mean, that's what my whole career is about. And that's Mm -hmm. actually where I think I have some tools that a lot of folks don't use. Right. Like for me, the way I do it is through comedy. The way I do it is through is through humor, because when Mm -hmm. I get people laughing, people who are laughing are learning more than any other people on the planet. When you're laughing, your brain is open, you are excited, you are alive, and you are willing to learn. I do this shit with more humor than anyone else, like, than most people in the trans space. And that is like my secret fucking strategy. That's my like secret sauce. You know well, what I mean? Well, when I, when I was kind of Googling you before we talked today, just to brush up on things, I saw someone referred to you as a, a David Sedaris type. I, I thought that was a pretty, pretty good compliment. <laughs> that makes my whole life, because also David Sedaris is like a notorious, um, it's not only like a literary juggernaut, but it's also a notorious North Carolina queen. Right. You know, where are you, she, where are you, where are you in North Carolina? By I'm way? in Raleigh. David Sedaris and I have the same hometown. And okay. one day we're going to be friends. I don't know when he's going to reach out to me, but eventually I want to go, because he lives in the UK now, but I want to go to the UK, go over to his house, have dinner. That's my like, okay. that's like one of my biggest, like, I'm just, I'm gonna keep putting that into the universe until it happens. Somebody who knows them is going to see this and eventually it'll happen. Send a letter yeah. to him and his team, like for my book. Um, Cause I'm, you know, when my book was coming out, we were trying to think of like, who would be like the dream forward for the book. Um, and we ended up not having a forward at all. Cause sometimes it's better to not have one, but we did reach out to David's team. And I was, cause my dream, my real dream for my whole life. And it's still my dream. So David, if you're listening, you know, like feel free to, you know, this is still, this offer still stands. But all I want is David Sedaris to write a foreword to one of my books that is just him roasting me in the way that only he can, right? Like just like a one page letter, big dear reader, Jacob is under the delusion that they are unique, interesting, witty, and smart. Please, for the sake of their fragile ego, please entertain this delusion. XOXO, David. And then just like flip to the next page and start the book. Like I would, my, that would make my entire life. Well, I, I hate to move on, but uh, we can move we're, on. Not, we're probably not going to cover everything in one episode anyway, the rate we're going. But, but I wanted to ask you, when did you first begin to recognize your difference? Mm. And what kind of memories were, do you have and how old were you then? Well, I, I mean, so, so I didn't always know I was trans or always know I was non-binary, but I always knew I was different from the earliest of my childhood. I knew basically when I was old enough to begin expressing myself, like at the age of like one, two, I had a gender that was a problem. Like the way I expressed myself didn't fit within the boundaries of what a boy was supposed to do. So I always knew I was different. It was just about learning to name that difference and realizing that I had there's a community of people who were different like me. That was what took a, a lot longer. And, and, you know, that came gradually in different waves throughout my life. And I talk a lot about that process in the book. But, you know, it started with kind of thinking of myself as gay and understanding, OK, that's part of this. And then realizing, oh, there's terms around all this gender stuff. There's this term genderqueer. There's this term non-binary. There's this term trans. Oh, I fit within the constellation of those things. And I think the most empowering realization I've ever come to is that identity 
it isn't one pair of shoes. I feel like a lot of times people act like your identity has to be one pair of shoes that you pick and choose to wear all the time. Identity is a closet. You can put as many pairs of shoes as you want in there. Or maybe a better way to think about it is identity is a layer cake. You can identify as multiple words. You don't just have to pick one. The more layers in the cake, the better. You know, the more layers in the cake, the closer to God, right? Because it just gets taller and taller. And so for me, it's like, I hold that I'm allowed to have all of these things. I am gay. I'm a gay person. I'm a gay guy almost in certain ways because I understand that experience because that was my life experience because that's still a community in which I feel I belong and I'm part of. I am trans. I am non-binary. I am gender non-conforming. I am gender queer. I can hold all of these words together as part of who I am. So in the book, you talk about how you came out to your parents as gay at 16 and mm. you thought you were done with revelations. And then, right. of course, <laughs> you began to gradually realize you weren't. How long did it take you before that next layer became clear? Well, it's hard because the layers after the gay, like gay, I definitely like baked that layer in the oven and then had a grand reveal. Right. But like but I like, kept it secret while I was baking it. And then the rest of the layers after that, I went to an open floor plan kitchen, you know, like one of those restaurants where you can watch them cook your meal. Right. It wasn't it, that's like we, we did a renovation and that was how my identity kitchen worked after that. There were eggs on the counter. The flour was out. The food coloring was out. The buttercream was there. People could watch me make all of it because I wasn't doing anything in secret anymore. It was just sort of like, well, I guess I'm just going to wear high heels today for the first time in public. Okay. And then I just did it. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what language I needed around that. I just did it. And then like, you know, I started experimenting with lipstick and started letting my voice sound a little bit different and a little bit more girly and a little bit more faggy and not feeling bad about that. Oh, I'll buy some nail polish. I don't know. Let's get some necklaces at Goodwill. It came together in plain sight. So I kind of stopped coming out after I came out as gay because I realized that coming out, like that, that making the whole dish behind closed doors and then bringing it out to the table, that was exhausting for me. I was like, nah, like I'm like, I want y'all to see this process and I want everyone to feel like a part of it. Like I don't want to come out again. I want to come out in so many little moments that you can't even say what that one is. So, you know, my, my gender identity after I came out as gay at, to my parents at the age of 16, my gender after that, I mean, it unfurled gradually over the course of a decade. It's still unfurling. And people ask me these days, oh, so like, do you ever think about medically transitioning? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe. And I just leave it at that because I'm like, I don't know, my mind might change. I don't want to tell anybody for sure <laughs> that I'm never gonna because who knows, I might wake up in three days and be like, you know what? Estrogen sounds great. Let's go. Right. And get on some hormones. I don't know. So I'm just like, I'll keep it open-ended. I want to live in the world in that way. Let me make clear for those listening. The book is entitled Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. It's out by Putnam. And yes. in it, you, you go through your childhood, going off to college at Duke, and then moving to New York. And it seems like from what I read, and also knowing you in several years you were here, that this is where you really blossomed. How much was New York a character in that? discovery and how long did that take well it's funny because i feel like when i moved to new york as an adult i came to new york as a fully formed queer and trans person i feel like i did all of my major identity development for the most part in the south and and that's something that you know is a story that's not often told we have this idea this notion that you have to move to new york or move to la or move to san francisco as a queer or trans person to really find yourself and figure things out that's just not how my life went and i think it's really beautiful that i was surrounded by queer and trans people in north carolina that i found mentors in north carolina in high school i had trans mentors you know the woman who 
convinced me, you need to apply to Ivy League schools. You're good enough to get in. She was a trans woman. She was my main mentor later in high school because she was getting, you know, she was off to get her PhD at Brown. And I'd never met someone who had gone to Brown before. I was, what? So, you know, I, I feel like I had a really lush queer and trans life in North Carolina. And so I moved to New York ready to take on an industry, not because I needed to find myself. I needed to find myself as an actor and find myself as a producer and find myself as an author and find myself among kind of a very elite culture for the first time. But I didn't need to find my gender. I was like, girl, I already know that. I'm good. I'm ready. I just need to figure out how to get on MSNBC or whatever. <laughs> now, you, you talk in the book also about the healing process, you know, after yeah. a, a, a childhood and an upbringing where you were really kind of denied that expression and dealing with the resistance that you encountered and some of the pain that went with that and then mm-hmm. having to go through the healing. How long did that take, rather? Did you find yourself you know, essentially forgiving the people that weren't able to allow you to be yourself earlier? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, if I have one message for, you know, queer and trans people, it's that coming out is does not just because you come out does not mean you've healed. I think there are so many of us in the community who never take the time to properly unpack everything that traumatized us about being in the closet. And then what traumatized us about, like about our own community, because like we can be really bad to each other sometimes. I mean, you know, they, they, I feel like the gay community can be such a beautiful, loving place sometimes. And that's what we tell everybody about us. We were like, oh, yeah, be yourself, whatever. But also, we all know that gay men can be incredibly cruel. And some of my traumas, like some of the things I'm healing from, some of the hardest things I'm healing from is when I came out, thought I had found my safe place. And then my safe place turned against me. Cruelty from other queer and trans people has been some of the hardest stuff to deal with in my life. But in every case, what I've learned, and, and, and you know, this isn't some woo-woo bullshit. This is like some real shit. Like, I wanted to be mad at people. I thought that being mad at people would heal me. But what I've learned is that the only thing that has ever healed me in life is empathy. No one is cruel to you because they are doing well. People traumatize you because they are traumatized. Hurt people hurt people. And the sooner I was able to acknowledge that men who catcall me in the street, the reason they're catcalling me in the street is because they've been abused. The reason that gay men can be so terrible to each other is because we're flailing with trauma that we haven't figured out. When someone body shames me, it's because they've been body shamed. When someone tries to make me feel bad about my gender, it's because someone made them feel bad about their gender. And I feel like the sooner I'm able to understand that cruelty doesn't come from nothing, it comes from unhealed trauma, the sooner I'm able to free myself from what people did to me. There's something powerful about being able to acknowledge the trauma of someone who hurt you. It's like in the movie when, you know, when you learn that the bully's home life is so terrible and actually they're a victim too. And then all of a sudden, the awful things they do to you, they stop holding power over you because it's not some person being cruel to you for cruelty's sake. It's a person crying out for help. That's interesting. If you don't mind now, Jacob, I'd like to circle back to what you've been doing since you and I met in New York City three or four years ago. Last I knew, maybe two years ago, you ended up getting an offer to move out to L.A. and work as an assistant, if I understand correctly, to Jill Soloway, the director and producer of Transparent. Is that correct? Almost. Um, I I moved out to L.A. to work as the director's assistant for our producing director, whose name was Allison Liddy Brown, and who's a badass TV director, this wonderful lesbian woman um, who's been in the industry for like 20-something years. I always said like she's been in the industry so long. She directed episodes of Xena, Warrior Princess. Oh, wow. 
isn't that hot? Even all those years ago, there was like a lesbian behind the lens on Xena. I'm like, thank God. I love that show. I don't know if all gay men did, but I just thought it was the hottest thing. Right. If you don't like Xena, if you didn't love that show, like, are you even queer? I don't know. (laughs) So how did you get this opportunity in L.A.? I graduated school and I always thought I was going to be like a policy kid. I knew that I wanted to change the world for gender nonconforming and trans people. Like I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to like join up and, and be part of that work. And I thought that I would do it on sort of the formal policy front. So I moved to D.C. for a little like summer internship program. And after three months there was like, this is not fertile ground for me. I'm way too much of a weirdo to work in this town. And I don't know how to like make a political reality for myself yet here. Like I'm sort of skipping a few steps, I think, in terms of what I think in an American democracy, at least when it comes to gaining rights um, and power for a marginalized community, we tend to have about a century of cultural visibility before we get formal legal rights. You have a long tradition, like you have a lot of cultural work and visibility and and hearts and mind shift before you have the critical mass necessary to then make policy changes that really matter. So I was like, okay, I'm a little bit ahead of the ball on that. And also as just a creative person in DC, like even if I were a cisgender woman, I would probably have shown up to work one day and they would have been like, "Mm, that pantsuit is kind of a cobalt and we need it to be more of a lapis or navy. Um, Cobalt's a bit too colorful for this office. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of place DC was. So I moved to New York thinking like, I think I'm going to do this media thing. Like I think I'm going to be like a writer, maybe a journalist or like get a job at BuzzFeed or something or like get a show on MSNBC, right? Like I want to sort of be like, do like political communication from the media side of things and realize I didn't want to be objective. Like you have to be quote unquote objective Like, I didn't want to perform objectivity, right? I didn't want to pretend to be objective in the way that all journalists pretend to be objective, because I think that's politically really nasty, right? Like, I think it would be much more helpful if everyone would just stop pretending to be objective, if all journalists would name there's no such thing as objectivity. The idea that a human can be objective is in and of itself stupid. You can't, um, there's no such thing as like 100% bias-free reporting. You can try your best. But still, like everyone has a bias. And certainly a lot of the best political communicators of our time come from a perspective. Anyway, so like I didn't want to do like journalism or be an editor, quid for, like like because I didn't want to like edit other people's work. I wanted to work on my own stuff. And also like, you know, the the sort of news world wasn't really ready. Like they weren't ready for like Rachel Maddow, but gender nonconforming the other way and like wearing grandma's clip on earrings on MSNBC every Thursday night. You know, they weren't ready for like me in like a frilly hot pink pantsuit and like chunky earrings and a bright lip being like, let me tell you what happened today. So I was like, okay, that's maybe not the space for me right now either. And then I was like, you know, but I'm really into this idea of like scripted television and world building that way, like building characters that everyone can fall in love with and creating shows that center on people that haven't necessarily been given that kind of visibility before. I um, mean, I was watching what was happening in Hollywood with the trans community and I was like, oh, shit, I think that's my people. I think that's where I need to be. I think that's where I can really make an impact and have the ability not to like be successful in a decade of perseverance, but the ability to be successful now. You know, and so that was when I started thinking about making a transition and started reaching out to some of the folks that I knew from like I like I knew one of the producers on Transparent through the Point Foundation and like, you know, had met a few people kind of here and there at queer and trans events. And so I reached out to some of the trans folks who worked on the show and just sort of asked, like, how is it working on this? Like, do you you know, like, like, do, do you think you're like you've learned a lot here? And like what you know, do you think that it would be a good move for me to kind of get involved? And is there a space for me in 
like September of 2016, I went out to uh, Los Angeles to meet with the writer's room for Transparent because they just wanted to learn a little bit more about like non-binary identities and like how non-binary and gender non-conforming people were thinking about ourselves and and just like, you know, have some general, just just do some, con- have, have some consultants come in to talk about that stuff. And then after I met with them, I was like, I think I like this group of people and I think LA doesn't seem too bad either. And so then I went back and just basically said, like, look, I'll move to L.A. to be a production assistant. Like, I have a legitimate job in New York, but, like, I need to take a plunge at some point. I need to jump off the diving board at some point. Let's do it. Like, if there's a PA job, I'll move out for that. Let me know. And they came back and were like, well, we have something a little bit better than a PA job. Um, although being PA jobs are, like, useful for learning, right? Like, because you have to learn how a TV show gets made one way or the other. They were like, we have, a, like, an assistant job for one of our directors. Can you be out here in two weeks? And I was like, sure, great, okay, great. I'm just gonna relocate my life real quick in two weeks. Um, let's go. <laughs> so I like dropped everything and ran away from New York and got to LA as quick as I could. Um, and wasn't even sure if I was gonna stay there afterwards. Worked on the show for for five months from pre-production, like from when they were still in the writer's room, all the way through post, like in the editing process and everything. Um, I learned so much. I learned it's kind of this, you know, thick and thin of how TV's made. I, I, I got to see every step of the process and I was just sort of, okay, I'm sold. I want to do this. This I want this to be my career for the next decade. I'm going to move here. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to be a thorn in everyone's side until they give me my own show. So how did that lead? What prompted you to leave? And where was the book planning in this process? So I had wanted to write a book for, like, I've wanted to write a book pretty much my entire life. You know, like, I, I, I was a nerd when I was growing up. I loved books. And I always looked at books and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to write yet, but I want to write one of those. Like, I want to do that. And so I spent, you know, I feel like a lot of my life has just been figuring out, like, what would my book even be? And and I sat down to write my book the first time in, like, late like winter 2015 early 2016 I sat down to try and write my first book proposal literally by googling how to write a book proposal and the the way I went about it was very was 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 by writing what I thought people wanted which was an earnest story that was like all about the, the trials and tribulations of everything, the struggle of, of who I am and, you know, ends with a big payoff that's very dramatic and wraps everything up in a nice bow of how I came to love myself and you can too, right? I sat down to kind of write that version of things, sent it to a bunch of very legitimate literary agents who I'm still embarrassed read my first proposal. Oh my God, I'm so like, I, I, I like... One day I have to republish it just for like the comedy of it all, like with annotations. But oh my God, it was so bad. It was, it was clearly a cry for help. It was like what I tried to do in the proposal, like in the proposal, I was like talking about all like my mental health stuff. And I was like, you know, and then I learned to get over it and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, girl, you're clearly still going through it. You're not at all. This is ridiculous. So, it, you know, obviously no one wanted to sign me. No agent wanted to represent me. No one saw a lot of merit in the project. I was heartbroken, decided to give up for a while. About a year later, my present literary agent emailed me totally out of the blue and was like, I've read a bunch of a few of your articles and, you know, like seen some of your videos and all that kind of stuff and just wanted to see, like, have you ever thought about anything? Um, and I was like, did I ever? And so we had this meeting and I was like, girl, I tried to write a book. It was bad. I don't think I have anything to say. I don't think I'm the right messenger for this. I don't think anyone wants to read what I have to say. I don't know. Um, and she was like, well, maybe if you're trying to write sort of within this tradition of like, like the serious memoir. But what I like about your writing is the comedy of it and the sort of wittiness of it and the tone of it. So what would happen if you tried to write a book that was like funny, 
like right if you uh, what if you embraced the comedic memoir instead of trying to just write a serious memoir and it was like a this giant revelation so right after we had that meeting i got the job offer for transparent so i like was like hold please to my literary agent catherine i was like i need a minute move to la and then once i got settled working on set and i was like okay, I have five months on this job and then I have no idea what I'm going to do next. I better figure something out. And I sort of had a really nice like doomsday clock slash fire under my ass to really get a move on. So I like, I would go to the coffee shop near my house when it opened at seven and then write from seven till nine, get to set by my 9.30 call time and work until 9 p.m. And then like get home, eat some dinner real quick, go to bed, do it all over again. It was a little bit grueling, but, you know, was, was able to have my book proposal fully finished by May of 2017 when my gig on Transparent ended and then went to New York right after right after I finished up on set to sell it. And then we had great success with that. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, shit, I have this thing called momentum in my career. Interesting. I haven't really known what that's felt like ever. And so then from there, you know, like it was it was actually a pretty straight line to the rest of it, right? Because A, I sold it on proposal, so I had to write the actual book after I sold it. So I knew I had to do that work. And then also, the moment you sell a book, you can start thinking about selling the television rights for it. And I was very clear with everybody. I was like, I want to write and produce this show. I want to star in it. And so my lit agent got me represented at a talent agency. And then we started working together. It was interesting because I hadn't even finished the book yet. Like we didn't even have a finished manuscript for the book when the book was optioned by a production company. It's funny because we announced the Showtime development deal like this November. But I've been working on developing this as a TV show almost as long as I've been working on the book. Isn't that funny? So uh, not to tip your hand because you're in the process of discovery, but what do you envisage that show will look like to an audience? Will it be your life? So the way I would describe it, it's going to be my first work of autobiography, but fictionalized, where there's the main character of the show, Toby, is inspired by me. And the events of the series are sort of inspired by the themes and ideas and core concepts of my life. But it is not biographical. Is it fair to say that it will be both informative and humorous? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> like, it's going to be the kind of thing, like, it's going to be funny. It's going to be raunchy. You're not even going to realize you're learning anything. I want people to show up and just effortlessly feel like they've always understood this non-binary thing and that they've never met anyone whose gender confused them and that they've always been down since day one because they watch this show. They fall in love with this character and their character's friends. And all of a sudden they're like, duh, of course I've always loved non-binary people. Of course I've always loved gender queer people. Of course non-binary people have always been a part of our culture. Duh. So one final question before we wrap up. Do you have any advice for young people who might be listening to this podcast and are thinking to themselves, that's it. I get it. I identify as gender nonconforming, too. What Mm. would you tell them? The most important thing is take your time with this thing. It's okay to take your time. I was in such a rush. I thought that I owed it. I thought I was a liar for not telling people exactly who I was the moment I realized it. I thought I owed it to everybody in my life to be completely honest all the time because that's what I was taught was right. And it and it really messed me up in some ways. It made it harder for me to explore some of these things, maybe privately when I needed to. Jacob, thank you for that. And best of luck with the book and the TV show. I hope everybody goes out and buys the book. It's a wonderful read. And I can't wait to see it on TV. Yeah, God willing, it will be on the little screen soon. Okay, thanks. Bye.
This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker. For more stories, go to bammer.co.